0: So this morning we kind we come to the end of our journey going through the book of 1 uh, Thessalonians. Uh, what was started as or intended to be a five week series has kind of evolved into a twelve week series as we've been unpacking 1 um, Thessalonians verse by verse. I I pray that uh, you are encouraged regarding the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, that you were challenged uh, to walk and live. In holiness, despite the, the hostile world in which we, uh, we live today. That was the message of Paul uh, to the church of Thessalonica, right? Hope and holiness in a hostile world. And it's also a call uh, to you and I today that we would live uh, lives of holiness, holding out the hope of Jesus Christ in a world that is opposed to Him. The book of First Thessalonians, if it's anything, is a reminder that regardless of what's going on around you and in the world, God is in control. And that nothing can thwart the plan of God and the hope that we have in Christ. I mean, that's the overall theme of First Thessalonians. There's a lot of details that are in there, but in the overlying message is, that nothing will ever rise or should rise to the level that we need to be fearful for our future because God is sovereign over all things and nothing's going to change God's plan for redemptive history as well as for your individual plan, God's individual plan and purposes that he has for your life. It's all done for the glory and majesty of Jesus. And so we see God is sovereign Over it all. As I pointed out last week, Paul highlights many eschatological events, um, many end time events that are on God's uh, timetable. He presents it in a way that um, is not to induce fear, uh, but instead ought to instill hope and encouragement and comfort to his readers. That's why he mentions in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, he says, we are therefore to comfort one another with these words. And so there is much comfort that is in the book of First Thessalonians. We saw that in addition to all that Paul addresses regarding what is ahead for the church, namely the, the end time events uh, that will find its climax in the, the return of Jesus, uh, we saw that, that Paul is spending a lot of time in the beginning highlighting much of that. And then as he enters into chapter 5, he, he kind of positions our feet back on the ground and reminds us how while we're waiting for the hope of Christ to come back to us, right? As we're focusing on our tomorrow, if you will, he instructs us on how we are to live our today how do we how are we to live in light of the hope of Christ coming for his church and we've been focusing our attention in this last chapter as paul has been focusing their attention on how do we engage today with one another we looked at the relationships that engage that are, that exist within the church we saw how the congregation is respond, to respond to the overseers, how the overseers are to respond to the congregation. How we collectively ought to engage in a transparent and authentic and, and gracious relationship with one another, right? To be an extension of love and grace and mercy to one another, appreciating the beauty and the, and the privilege of the body of Christ. We looked at Five groups of people, five groups of of Christians that that exist within the church, right? I mentioned that that just like every family, right, that we're involved in, has some uh, less mature and less. Um, uh, enjoyable members within it, right? How many have some family members that if you had the opportunity to vote them off the island, you would have a long time ago, right? But the, your family, it's kind of like luggage. You, you keep them forever, right? And so there's the, in the same way, there's some family members that we need to extend some extra grace towards. Likewise, in the family of God, there are people that we also need to recognize that not everybody's at the same level of growth, as we are. Not everybody is as spiritually mature as you are. And so, as the reality of it is that, I know why this doesn't apply to anybody here, but there are times where immature believers will come into the mix. Again, I know it's not us, it's the church down the road, right? But but, for, you know, but we, need to, we need to be able to identify them so that we can come alongside them and be the family of God to them. I'm obviously, a lot of tongue and cheek going on here, right? We looked at five kinds of of Christians, Christians that are within the body of Christ that Paul will make reference to in that passage of Scripture. We talked about the, the distracted believers last week, right? Those, those who let what's going on around them, right? Whether it's the, you know, the, the, the call of life to be busy and do things, right? The distracted believers because, that allow themselves to be pulled away from what ultimately they ought to be doing, the priorities they ought to be living right and, but, and, and in the context of what paul 's addressing in the church is this idea of the body being together and gathering together and prioritizing the the community of christ and, and but there were some who were distracted by Again, the fears that were going on around them, the rumors that were going on around them, right? The distractions of life. And, and what was the solution that Paul gave? We are to admonish them, right? We are to, to teach them. We are to come alongside them, not to shame them, but to love on them and bring them along. We looked at the discouraged believers. Certainly there were believers in Thessalonica that were going through a a major shift in their their mindset, having many of them recently coming to Christ, many of them under the the hammer of persecution for their faith in Jesus, and and some of them were discouraged. And We talked about the fact that sometimes in the family of God there, there, there are people here that are going through discouraging times. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you've just come out of a discouraging time. And within every healthy family, there's going to be seasons of of being, like, you know, right on fire and and encouraged. And other times, there's going to be seasons where where we're feeling discouraged. What is the solution that Paul gives? He encourages us to encourage them. And then we talked about the the developing believers, right? Right? Those are those are those who, who struggle with with sin in their lives, right? Those who, who haven't l- reached the level of maturity that you have, right? That you you know they're still working out their own salvation, right? They 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 they're kind of working through this, right? And 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 we see the solution on how we are to relate with them is not to beat them up, not to shame them, not to make them feel guilty, not to not to you know publicly humiliate them but we see that the instruction is to um, help the weak, Paul says. And, and, and that word weak is actually referring to those who are spiritually weak. Right? We, we are to lovingly come alongside our family members, with, with the sincere desire to see them thrive and being all that Jesus wants them to be, right? We, we don't want to condone sin. We don't want to minimize sin. But in love, we want to come to our brother and our sister to encourage them to, to, to repent of those things so that they can grow into being everything that Jesus designs for them to be, right? And so he encourages them to, to help the weak. We looked at the disappointing believers, Right? The disappointing believers are are those who who don't listen after you've told them time and time again, here's how you apply truth, here's how you ought to walk, here's the things you need to let go, here's the way that you're gonna walk in victory in these areas. You know, life doesn't have to be so hard, right? Have you met Christians that sometimes it's kind of like it just seems like they're always struggling, but they're not looking to make any changes in their life, so their life can be a little bit easier, right? And and, and the reality of it is there there are sometimes there are people in the church where no matter how many times you point out, listen, here's what the word says, here's how you need to apply it, they just kind of keep letting you down. It's disappointing. And so what is is the solution that Paul says? He encourages us to be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. And and I talked about the importance of before before we identify who those people are, we need to look in the mirror and recognize that we have been on the receiving end and in need of the same patience from God that we need to extend to other people. I've been in need of the same patience from other people that, I've been, that I need to be extending to other people. And so when I recognize that I've been in the need of, of patience, it gives me the opportunity to extend and be patient towards other people. They're present in the church. They're believers in the church. We're thankful for them, and they're growing just like I'm growing the other believer that we talked about were the, were the destructive believers. The destructive, those, and I kind of identified them as those who are, it's kind of like the summary, the sum total of each of these, right? Those, those distracted, therefore discouraged, and developing believers that tend to inflict harm on one another, right? They're going through a season of discouragement, you know, hurt people hurt other people, Right? And instead of, instead of giving them back and dishing back you know, evil for evil, what is the solution that Paul says? He says, here's what you need to do. Do good to them. Be gracious to them. Give them mercy. Because that's what God has done for us. And maybe, just maybe, God will use our goodness to, the, to them as a healing balm to get them to grow, continue to grow in their faith. And so these are people that are involved within every healthy family. You never, listen, you're never going to rid the church of any one of these people. In fact, we have been these people. And in some cases, we are these people. And one day we are it, and one day we're not. We kind of sometimes, we weave in and out of those things. But hey, in the immortal words of the Jackson Five, we are family, (laughs) right? And the reality is we're not a perfect family. We're a developing family. We're a growing family. And we need to extend patience and love and appreciation and be an extension of God's grace to one another. And that's what kind of Paul is talking about here. And and so how in the world do we, how do we position ourselves to actually do that? I mean, that sounds real good and preaches real good, but at the end of the day, how do I put that to practice? How do I position my heart to be able to do that? Paul gives us some instruction in verse 16. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. You see, what do we do? We rejoice over God's work and what God is doing and focus less on what other people are doing, right? We recognize and rejoice of the fact that God has brought them into the kingdom, that God has begun to work in their life, right? We rejoice at what God is doing and we focus less on what they are doing, right? He talks about the importance of praying always. Pray without ceasing. It's praying always that my heart might align with God's heart. Because sometimes the people that drive you crazy, we need to remind ourselves that that's the same person that Jesus loves greatly. He loves them as much as he loves you. And so here's what I need to do. Instead of of defining them and alienating them, I need to get the heart of God and realize that, you know what, if God loves them a whole bunch, then you know what, maybe since I, out of my love for God, I can extend some love in their direction as well. And sometimes I need to pray to get my heart aligned with the heart of God, right? He says, and then also he says, give thanks in all circumstances, right? It's being thankful to God for what we see in the life of the person. Find the good. Celebrate the wins. Point out the blessings, right? It's easy, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to point out the areas that, that the person needs to grow. Go after that which God has done in the life of the person because hopefully people have done that for you. That's where we left off last week and maybe added a little bit to it, but I want to circle back there this morning because I think that it's important for us to remember that these are, these are the dynamics that are at work in our families that we were born into as well as in our families that we're born again into, right? And we need to, we need to recognize that, embrace that, and celebrate that so that we can be the healthy church that God desires, designs us to be. We pick up then, he says, in, you know, so he says in verse 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And he says this in verse 19, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, and hold fast what is good. I want to tackle these one by one this morning. Remember, I mentioned that Paul has them has kind of look forward, right, to what is ahead, right? They're looking forward to the coming of Christ. They're looking forward to that moment where Christ is going to come for his church. And he lays out that for them. And, and while they're looking at tomorrow, he gives them great instruction on how they are to live today, how we are to engage today, that we don't get our heads so caught up in the clouds that we don't deal with realities of life, right? And so we, we see calls to holy living and and extending grace and mercy and, and the character of Christ in, 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 around the world in, 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 in the world around us but then now he also kind of brings back this idea in full circle and he says listen the same token don't quench the spirit don't despise prophecies but test everything and hold fast to what is good what is Paul saying here Well, the first thing he says here is do not quench the spirit do not quench the spirit In other words, be led by the Spirit and not by your own fears and your worries about the future. Remember, this letter was written in response to a young church that had gotten some news that Jesus had already come and they were walking in the day of the Lord and chaos was about to be experienced by all of them. And they're they're struggling, right? They're worried, they're, they're concerned. And they're allowing their fears and their concerns to 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 take root in their hearts. They were being influenced by lies, by false teachers, right? That were circulating lies. That, yeah, you're in the day of the Lord, Jesus has forgotten about you. They're being influenced by their own fears. And Paul's encouragement to them was, don't quench the Spirit of God. Don't, spe- don't quench the Spirit. Don't silence the voice and leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. And why, why does he say that? Because clearly, that's what they were doing. They believed, and they held on to a lie, which is why they were so concerned. They had the same Holy Spirit of God that inspired the Apostle Paul to write these truths to them. You see, if they were, and, and I'm sure that within the church, not everybody was believing that they were walking in the day of the Lord. Not everybody believed that the lies were true. Not everybody was engaging in the rumors and the gossip. Clearly there were people that embraced and were walking in truth and, and knew that the Holy Spirit was doing a work in their lives. But some of them, they allowed the Holy Spirit's voice in their life to be silenced by their own concerns and fears and worries. They allowed themselves to be um, informed and influenced by their fears and it caused them to quench the Holy Spirit in their lives they had the same Holy Spirit that Paul did but they weren't leaning upon and being influenced by the Holy Spirit and therefore they quenched the Holy Spirit's influence on them and he says don't quench don't quench the Holy Spirit I've seen so many Christians do that very thing. You know, John said, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, when he was telling his disciples, as soon as he's going to go away, he says, It's good that I go away, for if I don't go away, when I go away, the Holy Spirit, he will come. And he will be with you and he will be in you and he will, he will teach you and, and, and lead you and guide you into all truth. He will remind you of the things that I have taught you. It's if you're a believer this morning that the Holy Spirit of God is within you and it is the Holy Spirit of God that is teaching you and leading you and guiding you into all truth. That means that the Holy Spirit of God within us is to be our greatest influence. It is the Holy Spirit of God that takes the word of God and moves it beyond intellect and becomes life and truth to our soul but how many times in the life of the christian do we know what we should be doing but we don't do it anyway we disobey god we know what the Holy Spirit is reminding of us, us to do or not do, or how to prioritize, or how to live, or how to respond, or how to walk, or how to love, or how to forgive. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We know because the Holy Spirit who is faithful to remind us. Have you had those moments where you look and you're about to do something and there's a, a check in your spirit? You say, oh, you know what? I probably shouldn't do that. What is that? That's the Spirit of God Letting you know you're about to do something that's inconsistent with your new nature in Christ. What do you want to do? Right? And hopefully we, we say, you know what? I'm going to walk from that. I'm not going to do that. But sadly, I have seen so many Christians, and so have you, that have heard that and said, you know what? Yeah, but. Yeah, but you don't understand. I've got to factor this in. I've got to worry about that. I've got to consider this. It's a dangerous place for the Christian when they get to the point where the things that used to convict them, listen, the things that they used to convict them don't convict them anymore. Maybe I am speaking to you this morning. I know I'm speaking to myself. Because I've got to do some inventory in my life and and consider maybe there were some things that you thought, I would never do this. I'd never believe this. I'd never go there. I'd never participate in this. But as time has gone on, you gave yourself, this, you grew into a grace that gave you freedom to do that. And at one time, you didn't do it because the moment you did, what happened? The Holy Spirit would convict you and you're like, oh, no, I, I don't belong there. I shouldn't do that. It's a dangerous place for a Christian when they get to the point where they the things that they used to, conv- used to convict them don't convict them anymore. Where the priorities that they used to have fall at the wayside. You see, when we get into the second Thessalonians and he starts to talk about the great falling away, we can see that the stage gets set for that reality to be very easily experienced. Christians who... Who used to prioritize the house of God? Who used to prioritize Bible study? Who used to prioritize tithing and generous giving? Who used to prioritize evangelism? Why do I highlight those things? Well, the house of God, it has to do with our prioritization of our time. Perhaps our most valuable commodity which is why the scripture calls us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why do I talk about the importance of of Bible study? It's a prioritization of our own spiritual growth to make sure that we're being influenced by the word of God more than influenced by the world. Why do I talk about the prioritization of of generous giving and tithing? Because it's a reflection of our hearts. Jesus made the connection time and time again that where our heart is, there our treasure will be. Why do I highlight the importance of evangelism? It's the prioritization of the fact that we are in mission, that we are missionaries. And, if we, when, and see, these are the things that when we first bought into Christianity, we thought, yeah, that's right. Yeah, these are great disciplines. We don't do these things to get saved. We do these in response to our salvation. This is what disciples do. But what happens oftentimes is when people in the faith, listen, there's a great blessing about being in the faith for a long time. But with it comes a great responsibility to steward the history that we have because like in every other relationship if we're not careful we, become, we can begin to take, it, take for granted the grace of God the forgiveness of God the priorities of God We've, it takes place in, in, in marriages all the time it takes place in all kinds of relationships the longer you're with a person you know what she'll understand he knows me this and, and we, st- we let go of those things that drew us together it's that first love relationship right I get greatly concerned, church. Can I just kind of pause there for a moment as I just see the landscape of the church today? Huh? I'm, not, I'm not beating anybody up this morning. If this doesn't apply to you, great. Encourage somebody else with it. But, but the reality of it is, I just know that there are times when, the, when the, see, what happens is we do something. Maybe this might resonate a little bit. We, we, we do something we know we shouldn't be doing. We engage in an area of sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us of it and at that moment we're like I know it's wrong but and then we do it again and the Holy Spirit convicts us of it and we say "I I know it's wrong but and we do it again and we say you know what And the Holy Spirit convicts us of it and we say we know it's wrong but and then we do it again and we don't feel convicted anymore we don't feel that, that, that disconnect that we once felt so long ago. And one of two things has happened at that moment. Either God has lowered the bar and has understood your sin and said, you know what? I get it. It's okay. I will change for you. Because sometimes I think we think he does that. Or what have we done? We have quenched the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit is not speaking. It's not that the word of God has changed. We have just conditioned our hearts to not hear his voice. And Paul is saying in the midst of everything going on, don't quench the Holy Spirit in your life. I want to challenge you and charge you, family of God. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. If you're engaging in things and doing things and participating in things and prioritizing in ways that you knew were wrong and you were convicted of a long time ago, but not anymore, bells and whistles should be going off. You have not grown and evolved into another level of maturity. You have stepped into an area of quenching the spirit of God. We need to take that very serious. We need to repent of that we need to turn from that and beg God restore unto me the joy of my salvation as David cried out take not thy Holy Spirit from me the fear of God ought to fill our hearts when we realize we can be engaging in sin without any feeling or fear of the wrath of God or the punishment of God or the consequences of our sin if we're not feeling that then we have quenched the spirit of God, and bells and whistles should be going off. And I know that's hard to hear, but God help me if I don't say it, because that's what it call, That's what we're called to—His disciples a red-hot, passionate love for Jesus, a walk of discipleship, a walk of discipline, a walk of picking up our cross and following Jesus. And listen, if we drop the ball, we confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but don't quench the voice of the Spirit in your life. Because that's how the Holy Spirit's influence Is sanctifying us into Christ likeness. Don't quench the spirit. Secondly, he says, you can breathe. He says, don't despise prophecies. Don't despise prophecies. This is, this is not referring to the gift of prophecy that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. How do I know that? Because there is no mention whatsoever about the spiritual gifts in the entirety of 1, Thess- 1, Thess- 1, Thess- 1 Thessalonians. And so to make the connection that he's speaking of prophecy like he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which is a completely different conversation that's not what he's referring to here in the context of the entire epistle which is why it's important to make sure that we read the word of God in the context in which it's given so we can understand the intent of the spirit of God preserving the scripture for us right and so in the context of this entire epistle of first Thessalonians he's referring to the prophecies regarding the end times that's been the subject matter all along and so he's saying here don't despise prophecies that when they seem to delay, when they don't happen on your time schedule or according to your expectations, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, Jesus isn't coming back. Don't say, you know what, hey, nobody could ever know. Don't write off all Bible prophecy just because you haven't seen the fulfillment of it. I find it interesting how many Christians don't feel Bible prophecy is important. Do you know that for every one reference in the Scripture that is talked made to Christ's first coming? Do you know that there's eight more scriptural references for His second coming? I think the Scriptures got something. I think that makes it very important for us to consider. Do you know that, in, uh, that that 17 out of the 39 Old Testament books make reference to Christ's return? 17 out of the first 39 books. Do you know that 23 out of the 27 New Testament books makes reference to Christ's return? In fact, 7 out of 10 chapters in the New Testament make reference to Christ's return. That's huge. Whether it's the rapture or the second coming, the scripture has a lot to say on the subject. That's 1 out of 30 verses in the entire new testament that make reference to christ's return i think that's worth spending some time on i think it's important for us to recognize that 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 the holy spirit has placed that there so that we we can understand the times and seasons in which we live but the problem is just because some knucklehead ascribed a certain date to Jesus' coming and he gathered a group of people and he moved into the deserts of wherever, right? And they just kind of left society. We look and think, what a, what, you know, and that date came and passed. And we look and say, you know what? Bible prophecy doesn't really mean anything. See, it's very, it's really irrelevant. No, just that knucklehead is irrelevant. God's word hasn't changed, and we need to be good stewards of studying the scriptures scriptures so what do we do with all of this bible prophecy especially when it appears that much of the fulfillment of the bible prophecy about end times seems to be unfolding before our very eyes how do we respond when we see much of the bible prophecy that is spoken of appear to be unfolding before our very eyes. Everybody's got a a book, a comment, a blog, a post, or whatever about the end times, right? How do we navigate through this in a way as, as good disciples of Jesus and good students of God's word? What does Paul say? How should we respond? He says in verse 20, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Don't despise Bible prophecy. Test it. Test it. Test everything. Examine it. Assess it. Study it. Test it according to what? Test it according to the word of God. Make sure that any interpretations that we are reading... And drawing is consistent with the contextual reading of God's word. It is our standard of faith and practice. It is our, it is our touch point, right? It is the thing that we look to to help us understand what we should believe. Paul says this to Timothy, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. The word of God is our touchstone. It is the very thing that we use to test everything. The psalmist said, your word is a, a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. It is, it is the very thing that, that guides our feet and lights up the path to warn us of dangers. Test everything. Now, I've got to say that this, this applies not, not only to Bible prophecy, but to all Bible teaching and Bible teachers. All doctrines, all posts, all blogs, all philosophies of men. It needs to be seen through the lens of God's word. And I'll add that God's, it needs to be seen through God's word in the context in which it's given. Not just when they throw a supportive scripture in there out of context. God has preserved his word for you and for me to be good stewards of it, And we live in a day that it is so accessible that nobody can claim ignorance. And I wanna encourage you that before you engage in listening to that Bible teacher online or that blog post or that thing that you listen to, can I tell you some of the biggest names in Christendom today are teaching false doctrine? But the churches don't the, the, the church embraces it because hey you know what hey it's Andy Stanley hey it's big they've got a huge platform everybody seems to, he's got books out there you know you, you need to dig a little bit deeper into what's being taught there folks we need a, we need to test everything Could I just tell you you need to test me by the way don't you dare just come in and think well you know what he knows what he's talking about he's got his doctorate there's a bunch of doctorate people that are doctrinally wrong you need to know for yourself test everything test everything God has made the word of God so accessible in this time of error that we have no excuse to be taken by surprise test everything and then he says look he says test it And then he says, hold fast to what is good. Test it and hold fast to what is good. Like a dog on a bone, you hold on to the truth of God's word. Don't let any trial, don't let any lie, don't let any influencer wedge its way between you and the truth of God's word. You leave no space between you and the truth of God's word for a lie to wedge its way in there. Hold fast to what is good. Notice he says, hold fast to what is good, which also means let go of what's not good. You see, there's stuff you're going to test, and you're going to see it's good, and you're going to hold on to that. But there's stuff that you're going to test, and you're going to realize that's not true, that's false, and you need to let go of that. An example of that is seen in Jesus' instruction to the church at Ephesus in, in, in Revelation chapter 2. And we know that obviously Ephesus has gone astray. They, they were doing some wonderful things in the church. The church was booming. They were, they were really killing it on so many levels. The problem was they left their first love in the process. In the midst of all they are doing, they forgot who they were doing it for. But they, they, it's not that they were doing anything wrong. They were just not doing it for Jesus. But notice what Jesus says, he he kind of, he builds them up, he encourages them. He says this in verse 2 of chapter 2 in Revelation, speaking to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false." they're doing the work of the ministry they're, they're in the word of God they're understanding truth they're testing the teachers and they're recognizing even those who claim to be apostles they have tested and, and found them to be false test everything test everything hold fast to what is good let go what's not and then he says this abstain from every form of evil abstain from every form of evil. It's just a reiteration of the call to holiness that he reminds the believer to walk in. You see, we're not what we used to be. We've been called out of darkness and into light, right? We've been changed. We've been transformed. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come, right? You're not what you were. You're a children of light, he makes reference earlier, right? You're you're, you're, you're of a completely different position, a different hierarchy, a different order if you will. You're a child of God. And he says, therefore abstain from evil. Why? Because it, it's inconsistent with who you are. You're children of the day. Walk as children of the day. Abstain from every form of evil. And Paul has presented everything as we near the end that the Holy Spirit has led him to write and And then he's continuing to pen as the Spirit leads him in this final benediction. And his prayer for this church that was was new, this church that was nervous, this church that was concerned and perhaps even lacking some peace over the possibilities that some of the lies and the rumors that were circulating, God forbid, they they were true. And Paul's Blessing upon them is found in verse twenty-three. He says, "Now may the God of peace Himself—I love that—the God of peace Himself—in other words, He is the source of peace. All right, He is the source. He is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely." And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul prays for the the complete sanctification of the church. In other words, not just the sanctification of the church here on the earth that we're actively engaged in as we are a work in process, right? The Holy Spirit is working on us. That's not what he's referring to. It's it's rather the, he's talking about the entire work of sanctification. May he sanctify you completely, whereby the saint of God is in the presence of God whether that be through a hole in the ground in death or through a hole in the sky through the the coming of Christ, his prayer is that 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 the Holy Spirit, the God of peace, would sanctify you completely. That his people would be presented completely sanctified. And notice what he says here. He says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. Maybe he kept blameless. Jude will echo these words in his benediction to the church and the epistle that bears his name in verse 24, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and look, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, look, with great joy. In other words, Jesus, the groom, is looking forward to presenting his bride to the Father with great joy because they will be blameless. How in the world are we ever going to be presented blameless? Because we are in Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his Son. Again, look at Jude's words. He says, Look, now to him who is able to keep you and present you faultless. How is God going to present us blameless? Paul will say in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. Look, He will surely do it. He'll do it. If He's got to break your will, He'll do it. He's going to present you blameless. Why? Well, as Paul told the church at Ephesus, we're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. He told the church of Philippi that he that began a good work in you, he's, he's gonna complete it. Complete what? Make you blameless unto the day of Jesus Christ, when he presents you to the Father. Be encouraged, brother and sister, that no matter what comes your way, regardless of what's going on around you or in this world, whatever your future holds, the God who loves you holds your future. And it is sure. And he will complete the work in your life. Look at Paul's Paul's final words in this epistle. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I like what he says here. Number one, he says, pray for us. Paul recognized not only his need for the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he recognized his need for the brethren. The body of Christ. Because the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And he appeals to them, will you pray for me? Will you pray for us? Then he says, look, he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. In other words, stay in fellowship. Be together. Engage in life together. That's how you are designed. And then look what he says here, such such a a solemn command from the Apostle Paul, such strong words, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter, which is the word of God. You have it read to all the brothers. Don't withhold truth. Let the light of God's truth shine in dark places so we can expose lies. And then he ends it with, well, I'll end my message with you this morning. He says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And also with you, Integrity Church. May the hope of our next moment inform how we live our current moment and may it be to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for it, that, that it is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, would you help us to navigate our lives using the lens of your word, that we would be people of the word, that we would allow our thoughts, our motives, our priorities—to be informed and influenced by Your Word, Lord. Maybe there's someone here this morning that has quenched the Holy Spirit in their life. Maybe they're, maybe they're at home watching online. The very fact that they're at home watching online is the very area that they have allowed. The quenching of the Holy Spirit to take place because they should be in the house of God. Thank you that, Lord, you do not operate in the arena of guilt and shame, and I certainly don't want to do that either. But I pray that for each and every person that you would allow this truth to be applied in their life with the invitation to repent and to return back to their first love. And that as you instructed the church at Ephesus to do our first works, to reprioritize our walk with you, living a life of holiness in the world in which we live. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.